Good morning, church. My name is Alex Sheets, and I'll be reading from Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and chapter 12. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 12. I, the teacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to examine and explore through wisdom all that is done under heaven. God has given people this miserable task to keep them occupied. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun and have found everything to be futile, a pursuit of the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, see, I have amassed wisdom far beyond all those who were over Jerusalem before me. And my mind has thoroughly grasped wisdom and knowledge. I applied my mind to know wisdom and knowledge, madness and folly. I learned that this too is a pursuit of the wind. For with much wisdom is much sorrow. As knowledge increases, grief increases. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Absolute futility, says the teacher. Everything is futile. In addition to the teacher being a wise man, he constantly taught the people knowledge. He weighed, explored, and arranged many proverbs. The teacher sought to find delightful sayings and write words of truth accurately. The sayings of the wise are like cattle prods, and those from masters of collections are like firmly embedded nails. The sayings are given by one shepherd. But beyond these, my son, be warned. There is no end to the making of many books, and much study wearies the body. When all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this. Fear God and keep his commands, because this is for all humanity. For God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Alec. Like Steve said, my name is Scott Irwin, and I am one of the pastors here, and I don't know how to have fun. Um, I want to start with that to get that out of the way. It's true. Uh, my son would agree. I'm not good at having fun. He's great at having fun. Um, he has been to camp three times this week, once as a camper, twice as a volunteer. I hear nothing but great things about how fun he is, how great he is with kids. I, on the other hand, not so fun with kids. I have lots of experiences I could tell you about, but one, one stands out. And it, it happened about three and a half years ago. And I was driving in a car with three kids that are not my own. So at this particular time, for a few years actually, I was picking uh, these kids up from this family and bringing them to church. This family, they, they weren't able to make it on Wednesday nights, but they wanted their kids to come and I knew them and I was able to pick them up. And so every Wednesday night I was driving them to church and then driving them home. And I was always trying to think of like meaningful and fun ways to engage in conversation with them. <clears throat> and this particular day, they were extra quiet. They were always a little quiet. This time they were extra quiet and they were all on some, some kind of a device. So I'm like, okay, how am I going to get their attention? How, am I, how are we going to have some kind of meaningful conversation? And so I think, oh, this will be fun. I'll tell them about my eight ball. So I have an eight ball in my car. And the reason I have an eight ball in my car is because that year I challenged our college students, and I was a college minister at the time, I challenged our college students to memorize Romans 8. And if they memorized all of Romans 8, I would give them an eight ball. And so I did that. There was a handful of us that did that. So I had this eight ball I just finished. I was pretty proud of it, to be honest. And so 
I think, I know, I'll tell them about this eight ball. So I, I, I didn't tell you. There's a 14-year-old boy on his phone in the front seat, 11-year-old girl and a seven-year-old boy in the back. So I turned to the 14-year-old boy and I'm like, hey, do you know how I got this eight ball? And you know what he said? Nothing. Uh, I think he was hoping I wasn't talking to him because he didn't even look up. He just kept staring at his phone. So, so I got his attention. I'm like, hey, hey. I got this eight ball by memorizing all of Romans 8. And he gave me that look like, weird flex, but okay. <laughs> can, I, can I get back to my video? Like, he said it with his eyes, right? Just like, I don't know what to do right now. So I'm like, dude, this, this took me like two months to, there's 39 verses in Romans 8. There's a lot of verses. I was really impressed with this. And, and I'm like, come on, I'm trying to get him to talk about it. Like, just ask me what Romans 8's about so I can tell you all about the great Romans 8 and we can have this meaningful conversation that you'll remember for the rest of your life. That's what I was hoping for. And instead I got weird looks and can I get back to my video and, and then silence. And so then we pull up to this stoplight, and it's not but five seconds later, I hear from the seven-year-old in the back, nobody cares, <laughs> just like that. And it was, and it was, and it was so strange, because it came out of nowhere, so I'm looking around at the, park, at the cars, and I'm trying to figure out, like, what's going on? What's he Who's he talking to? And then two seconds later, nobody cares. And I look back, and he's looking right at me. And I'm like, are you talking to me? And he laughed, and then I laughed, and we all laughed. We laughed the whole way um, to, to church. And, and you know why we were laughing? It's because I thought that would be fun. <laughs> I thought it would be fun to have a meaningful conversation about Romans 8 with these kids who could care less about Romans 8 at the time. And that's why I'm not in kids' ministry. That's why... <laughs> I'm not over there teaching. I've never been asked. I don't want to be asked to do that. And my family knows this. And so like, it wasn't but a couple months later, they found a shirt for me. And so they bought me this shirt. I don't know if you can read it. It says, breaking news, nobody cares. <laughs> yeah, I've still yet to wear it, but I keep it. I keep it in my closet. Just as a reminder, I need to not take myself so serious. I need to have fun. I don't know how, so I don't know how to have, uh, all I want to, to do often with my family, and they know this, is to have meaningful conversations. I, like, I want to have meaningful conversations. I don't know how to have anything other than that. I don't understand it. And so my wife, just on Thursday, just a few days ago, she was telling me how I need to learn how to have small talk. <laughs> and so I said, okay. So what is small talk? So she goes on, here's, and here, here's what small talk is. Small talk is having meaningless conversations about unimportant details that happen in your day, right? So I'm like, okay, give me an example. So she says, okay, a guy at work, he and his wife bought a new car, a brand new car. Like they needed a new car and they bought a brand new one. Can you imagine? Like we haven't ever bought a brand new car. What would that be like? And they bought a Subaru. And so she went on to talk about the Subaru. And I said, okay. She said, okay, now you go. And I said, okay, I don't know anyone at work that's bought a brand new car. <laughs> so, 
So now what do we do? I don't know. <laughs> I didn't understand that I'm supposed to like talk about, I, tr I really tried. We, we laughed for a while because I, I struggled to find meaningless things to talk about. And I think it's a problem. I've spent some serious reflection on this. Um, here's, here's, what I think I'm, here's what I think is happening. I think more than just I'm trying to have, and don't get me wrong, I, I waste a lot of time too. Okay, so that's, I waste time watching YouTube shorts. That, that's, a, that's a vortex of wasted time, if there is one. But, but when I'm having conversations, I think, what's the point of this conversation if it's not going like, to change my life or change their life for all of eternity? So why are we having it? Can you imagine living with someone like that? It's pretty boring. <laughs> I think I've ruined every meaningful conversation now. Um, but, but I think what I'm trying to do is not just have a meaningful conversation. I think I'm trying to find my meaning in those conversations or in those experiences. And, and usually what ends up happening is they, they don't go quite how I think they're going to go um, or there's some dis disappointment or discouragement or it's like, well, what's the, what's the point? Why do I care? Nobody else seems to care. Why do I care? You know, I have these kinds of moments. And when that happens, I experience the futility of life. And I've had these moments all throughout my life, kind of like a, like a that's what it's all about moment. So I, I, I remember this as a kid. For me, growing up, sports. Sports is what it's all about. That's what it's about. And then I kind of grew out of that. Um, AKA my dreams ended my senior year in high school. Um, and so then I was like, no, it's about education. I need to have an education. That's what it's about. It's about getting it. And then I, I go on from that. I get a job. And you know what? I want to be the best at what I do. I remember having those thoughts. That's what it's about. I want to be the best. And then I read John Maxwell's 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. And I thought, it's about leadership. That's what it's about. It's about being a leader. And then I realized, well, John never talks about humility. Jesus was humble. I think it's really, Jesus was about being, serving, not being served, about serving. It's, it's about serving others. That's what it's about. And then the older I get with kids and the potential of grandkids someday, Lord willing, it's about a legacy. That's what it's about. It's about leaving a legacy. That's what it, and I have these moments all the time, and I have them in church. Not just in life. I have them in church. It's, it's, about, it's about salvation. It's about getting people saved. That's what it's about. No. It's about apologetics. That's what it's about. It's about defending your faith and answering the questions. And No. It's about deep theology. We just need to have better theology. That's what it's about. It's about evangelism. We just need to learn how to share our faith. It's about spiritual disciplines. If, if we just spent some time in the word and, you know, solitude, that's what it's about. No, it's really just about caring for people and loving people. I, literally, that's, that's my life. I just summarized my life for you. In, in the things that I'm, I keep looking for meaning in. Because futility happens to all of us. It happens. It comes in all shapes and sizes is no respecter of persons. We experience futility when we are disappointed with what happens, with our experience. We experience it when, we, when there's nothing we can do to change our circumstances. When we feel robbed of what we think we deserve in any 
in given moment? Or when we say out of frustration, like what's the point? Throw our hands up. Why, why do I care? And, and, and each time we have those moments, I think it proves that we're human. I think it proves that we're human and that we can't predict and control the outcomes like we want. And futility in those moments exposes a few things in us. It exposes our desire for fulfillment. Do you know when you were converted to the idea that you were supposed to find fulfillment in everything and in everyone? Like, that's a thing. I've been told most of my life, I can't even remember when I didn't believe that or, or, or when I first was introduced to the idea. It's a relatively new idea in the last 100 to 200 years that, that you and I are supposed to find fulfillment in every area of life, in your jobs, in your relationships, and when you're not, guess what you're supposed to do? Leave those things in order to find fulfillment because you're supposed to live a life fulfilled. Fertility comes and exposes that desire and our limits in it. It also exposes the gap between our expectations and our experiences. When you, when you, when you think things are gonna go this way, you don't even know you have the expectation until it doesn't happen the way you want and you're disappointed. And now you're dealing with disappointment and you don't know what happened. But you thought this was going to happen and then this is what happened. And futility exposes the gap in between. It also exposes our shaky, self-made, religious beliefs and desires. This is a big one. How we think God is going to should act and, 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 and will act, how we, what we think we deserve from him based on what we think he will do. Futility comes along and exposes that open nerve. In the past three years, if, if you've learned anything, if we've learned anything, it's that nothing is guaranteed. And therefore, I think we need to learn what to do when we experience futility. And Ecclesiastes is our book. Ecclesiastes talks about futility more than any other book. Um, and, it's, and it's meant to be an encouraging book, but in an upside down kind of way. So I wanna give three perspectives on Ecclesiastes because my hope is that I whet your appetite so you can go home and read it this week. It's 12 chapters, this doesn't take very long, but, you, but it's a fascinating book and it's a complex book because it's unlike any other kind of genre in literature. It is part of a genre, but it's a, it's a, it's a unique kind. It's a unique book. So here's the first, first perspective on Ecclesiastes. It's, it's, it's part of the wisdom literature, okay? So it's part of wisdom literature, and the, and the big three in the Bible are Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. And, and all three are meant to be read and studied in tandem with the others. In other words, when you read Proverbs, and you read about how to have the good life, how to, you know, you do these things and you get these results. There's a lot of, there's a lot of that kind of talk. Drew Henderson talked about it a couple weeks ago. You raise a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not turn from it. And, and Drew said it. This is a proverbial truth. This is a general truth. It's not a promise. It's a general truth. And there's a lot of those in Proverbs, but those are to be read 
with the understanding of Ecclesiastes and also Job. Ecclesiastes comes along, which we'll talk about, and says, hey, yeah, by the way, life is not a formula. You can't figure it out. You can't always predict what's going to happen, and it might disappoint you. And, and that's supposed to be read in tandem with Proverbs and with Job. And Job comes along and says, hey, by the way, there's suffering in this world that can't be explained, and you, never may, you may never find answers to And those are to be read in tandem with the others. And all of them are pointing to this idea of, okay, in light of all this, how do we humble ourselves before the Lord? Because wisdom literature is given to us to increase our discernment and to grow our wisdom. But Ecclesiastes is wisdom from the negative side of life. So here's what this guy named Robert Short says about it. He says, Ecclesiastes is a kind of negative theologian He's asking the questions that can only be answered by a future revelation of God. In clearing the road for this revelation, he smashes any and all false hopes. Ecclesiastes is the Bible's night before Christmas. Then he says this line, I love this one. Ecclesiastes is human self-sufficiency stretched to its absolute limit and found sadly wanting. Sound like a book you want to read? I think you should. Second perspective is that Ecclesiastes has two voices in it. And this is, this is helpful when you're reading through the book to understand what's going on. Okay, the two voices, um, Alec actually read both of them. The first voice is the narrator or, uh, you know, maybe the author. And he will introduce the, bur- the book. The first 11 verses of, of chapter one is the, is the narrator introducing the idea of futility and he's using examples in nature that all of us experience and he's just highlighting and pointing out this this very obvious thing that happens that all of us see so he introduces the book and then the teacher Alec read verses uh, he read chapter 1 verse 12 and 8 through 18 and and if you notice verse 12 says I the teacher and he comes along and he introduces himself and the teacher the word literally means um, kohelet in the Hebrew and Kohelet just simply means assembler, so they translate it as teacher. But, and he likens himself to Solomon, so we believe it's most likely Solomon, right? He never, he never says, I'm Solomon. He just says, describes him as the king, of, the king of Israel, the son of David, all these things. Why Solomon? Because Solomon was the wisest, wealthiest, most powerful king. And we're getting him at the end of his life, and here's what he's done. It's a thought experiment. What if you could, what if you had unlimited resources and power and, and, and you were able to try to experience life to its fullest in every possible arena? What would you learn? And the teacher comes along and says, here's what I've learned about life. And so he introduces, he's introduced in, in, in chapter one, verse 12, and he speaks the whole rest of the book until the very end. Chapter 12, verse 8, um, the, the narrator comes back, and Alec read these, these verses. The narrator comes back and quotes the teacher again. Futility, futility, everything is futile. And then the, the narrator concludes the book. So in other words, the narrator, I believe, he bookends the teacher's thoughts, and he, and he gets to introduce and conclude. And so he holds the meaning. Those are the two voices. Here's the third perspective, and this is kind of the point where we're going today. The third perspective is 
the main theme of Ecclesiastes is dealing with this word, this, this Hebrew word, hevel. And hevel. Hevel is a complicated word, so let me take some time to explain it. It literally means vapor, smoke, or breath. It occurs 38 times in Ecclesiastes, the most used word. It's translated for us in CSB as futile. Other translations use meaningless um, or, or vanity. And, and here's what's happening. Okay? This, is, this is actually a, a humidifier, putting out vapor. Okay, it's a funny story. In the first service, I had it right here. And I didn't realize it was gonna be blowing in my face the whole time. So I'm literally preaching, and I'm like, okay, this is, this is distracting. I move over here, and it comes and blows in my face. And then move over here, and it comes and blows, and I don't think, this is not how I thought this was going to go. Sound familiar? Anyway, um, so I found a little thing. So this is, this is vapor. And the idea is that vapor is, is temporary and fleeting. The moment you try to grab it, it's not there. Just when you think it's there, it's gone. It's, it's, it's temporary and fleeting. It's also, the, the word hevel is kind of used to describe like an enigma or, or paradoxical, Right? Just when you think you have it figured out, you can take this thing and manipulate it and make it do, it's gone. Just when you think you have it figured out, you don't. And, and, the, and the teacher is using this, this, this metaphor over and over and over throughout the book to say basically this, that life sometimes is temporary, fleeting, and paradoxical, and you can't manipulate it and control it for your own purposes. That's Hevel. And he says things like um, wealth and possessions and pleasure and work and even wisdom is hevel. And so I want to give you some examples on the screen. He says wealth is hevel. Here's, here's the verse, Ecclesiastes 5.10. The one who loves silver is never satisfied with silver. And whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with income. This too is futile. He says possessions are hevel. Ecclesiastes 2.11, when I consider all that I had accomplished and what I had labored to achieve, I found everything to be futile and a pursuit of the wind. He says that phrase a lot as well, a pursuit of the wind. Try chasing the wind. That's a futile effort. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. And he says, pleasure is hevel. I said to myself, go ahead, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy what is good. And he describes several things that he chased after. But it turned out to be futile. And he says, work is hevel. When, when there is a person whose work was done with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and he must give his portion to a person who has not worked for it, this too is futile and a great wrong. In other words, yeah, go ahead. Use your wisdom, knowledge, and skill to work hard and to achieve a lot. But guess what? There will be a day when you're going to pass and everything's going to fall in someone else's lap and you have no control over how they got it or what they do with it, is it worth it? Then he says wisdom is hevel. Now this is tricky because I thought we were supposed to grow in wisdom. I thought wisdom is a good thing. Wisdom is something we should seek. And actually he says it is. But he says, so, so I said to myself, what happens to the fool will also happen to me. Why then have I been overly wise? 
So I said to myself, this is also futile. He will say several times that wisdom is better than folly. Like it's, it's better to be wise than a fool. He says, um, a wise person is like having eyes and can see. And a fool is like somebody who walks in darkness. So yeah, it's way better to have eyes and see than to walk in darkness. But he says, when, when I'm seeking after wisdom to try to find my meaning in it, that's when it becomes a problem. With each of these, he tried to find the meaning of life in these experiences, and he eventually realized there was no meaning to be found. So here's what he's not saying, though. He's not saying life is meaningless. That's why the NIV uses the term meaningless, and it almost can sound like meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. And I don't, I don't like that term because it's not really what's being said. He's not saying life is meaningless. He's saying the meaning of life is not found in the experiences of life. It's like at each, at each point, at each turn, he was, he was hearing life whisper in his ear or maybe shouting from the back seat, nobody cares. Have you um, seen epic fail videos? I know you have, because um, we all like to watch them. It's a guilty pleasure. It really is. Why is that? Why do we like watching people fail epically? Have you thought about it? I've thought about it. Um, here's what I think. I think it's because it exposes this kind of... Um, this, this, this thing that all of us experience, these moments where we think, okay, this is gonna be awesome, watch this. Usually it's a guy trying to do something really stupid and, and then he falls on his face or somewhere else and we go, ooh, but we go, what's the next one, right? We, there's something about this, like I know what it's like to think this is gonna be great and then it fails because all of us have those moments all of us experience futility. It happens, and we can't avoid it. We can't avoid it. Another major contributor that Kohelet, the teacher, will say, um, a major contributor to Hevel, is the evil and unpredictable realities of life. He says, injustice is pervasive, and death happens sooner than we want. And so the author of Ecclesiastes comes alongside of us in the, in the midst of some of our most um, darkest or maybe disappointing moments in life and says, like sits with you and says, life is hard and sometimes doesn't make any sense. But then it, but then it also comes along and reminds us that all of us are going to experience this, like if you haven't experienced these moments, you haven't lived long enough. You're going to experience futility. You can't avoid it. But we, can, but we can do something. So what do we do with it? What do we, how do we handle futility? Do we, do we grab on and maybe squeeze, squeeze tighter, try to make it something that we want? Do we try harder? Is that the answer? Or do we just kind of give up? Like, what's the point? Just throw our hands up in the air, quit. Ecclesiastes doesn't give us either option as a good option. 
So here's my favorite verses from 2020. It's found in Ecclesiastes 4, 5, and 6. It's on the screen. It says, the fool folds his arms and consumes his own flesh. Okay? Better one handful with rest than two handfuls with effort and a pursuit of the wind. Here's what he's saying. Don't fold your arms and be lazy with life. Don't just give up because it's hard and you can't control it and you can't predict it. Don't give up. But also, gripping the steering wheel with two hands to try to force it to be something you want, that's like chasing the wind. Why would you do that? So, in other words, what he's saying is grab on to the things that God's given you to do, right? Every, every single one of us, no matter what happens today, if we wake up tomorrow, we have things to do. Grab on to those things. Make the most of those things. But hold one hand open in rest. In other words, one hand open to God, trusting him, looking to him to find meaning in these things. Because even though Ecclesiastes is wisdom from the negative, um, it's, it's meant to to help us find meaning in life. Because even though futility happens, we can't avoid it, but we can see it as a gift. We can see it as a gift. That futility can be a gift, can be an opportunity to do something with it. The meaning in life is not found in things under the sun. That's the phrase that's used 30 times in, in the book. It's the second most used phrase other than, other than Hevel in the book. And the idea is that yeah, your, your meaning is not found in experiences under the sun. Your meaning is found in the one above the sun, the one who, who, who's designed this in the first place, the one who provides the meaning, and we're to look to him, that God is sovereign and that he's over all of it, but he gives you and I the opportunity to recognize futility and to respond with wisdom and discernment because our response is our responsibility. That's, that's wisdom literature. We're to read these things in tandem and we're to understand and we're to apply the truths of scripture in, with discernment and wisdom to respond in faith. So do you need this reminder today that, that you can't stop futility? You can't control the outcomes of everything you think you can in your life? Do you need a reminder that there's a God in heaven above the sun who is sovereign over it all that his ways are not your ways, and yet he gives you control on how to respond to him. Is it out of fear or faith? Is that out of laziness or obedience? Futility is a gift. And I believe this, this experiencing futility can be a gift that reminds us of three important responses, okay? Here's the first one. It can remind us to humble ourselves. The, the common phrase used in the wisdom literature is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. By now the series, you should know that there is no godly wisdom apart from humility. Humbling yourself before the Lord. That's step one. And the ultimate message of Ecclesiastes is found in the last couple verses in, in chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. He says, when all has been heard, the narrator, the, when all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this. Fear God and keep his commands because this is for all humanity. For God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. 
He's saying, fear God and obey his commands and trust God's judgment over all the things that happen. Trust your future and your eternity to him because he sees it all. Wisdom comes from humbling ourselves to be in relationship with God and staying on his path. Wisdom in the Bible is never described like we think of it. It's not described like an education. You, you, when you graduate from college, you receive, you've received an education. You have something to prove it. You have an education. You have knowledge. Wisdom is more like you stay on a path. Wisdom is a path, not a destination. You stay on a path, and as you humble yourself in relationship with him, he keeps you on this path. And Solomon is actually a great example of this. Solomon was, was said to be the wisest king. But Solomon, if you know the story, the rest of the story, Solomon gets off the path of wisdom. He abandons God and, and, his, and, and chases after other idols. And so Solomon's life ends in kind of a blaze of like failure, epic failure. Hey, Solomon was an epic failure video that he, his sons eventually split the kingdom in half. So like, because he didn't stay on the path, wisdom is a path, not a destination. Second thing, I think this futility is a gift is it, it teaches us to enjoy life. It reminds us to enjoy life. Isn't that kind of a twist that you would think that, okay, what's the point? We can't predict these things. Bad things are gonna happen. You know, no amount of kale or push-ups can prevent someone from hearing a bad diagnosis, right? So what's the point? Why even try? Just eat whatever I want, do whatever I want, right? No. The, the Bible, Ecclesiastes especially, is saying, he says several, seven different times in this book, seven different times, after he's experienced futility, he says he realizes that life is a gift to be enjoyed. And here's an example of one. It's in, in uh, chapter five, verse 18 through 20. Right after he's experienced Hevel in wealth and in work, he says this, here's what I have seen to be good. It is appropriate to eat, drink, and experience the good in all the labor one has done under the sun during the few days of his life that God has given him because that is his reward. Furthermore, everyone to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also allowed him to enjoy them, take his reward, and rejoice in his labor. This is a gift of God, for he does not often consider the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy of his heart. So Tim Mackey, in summarizing this, this gift to, of life that's to be enjoyed, he says this, seeing the hevel in life is the key to enjoying life. Seeing the hevel in life is the key to enjoying life. Do you need that reminder today that you're called, you're asked to respond to these disappointing and, and, and unpredictable moments in life to respond by saying, you know what? I'm gonna enjoy what I can. I'm gonna enjoy what, what God you've given me. And third thing is this, I believe that futility is a gift to remind us to put our hope in Jesus. The Bible, so I love about wisdom literature, it meets us in some of our highest moments, Proverbs, some of our most frustrating and disappointing moments, Ecclesiastes, and some of our darkest moments of suffering, Job. And it sits with us 
And it gives voice to each of those things. But, but ultimately, it points us to the future. It points us to God. And in the Bible, hope has a name, and his name is Jesus. And here's what he said. Jesus said a couple things that I think would be helpful for us this morning. In, in chapter 16, verse 33, he says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. That's a promise Jesus makes that you will have suffering. And his promise is not, and I'm going to take it all away so you never have a bad thing happen to your life, in your life, or I'm going to give you an explanation of why everything bad happens so that you can feel better. No, he says, I may not solve the tension, but I've ultimately solved the problem. I've, 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 because of my sacrifice and my conquering death, I have made a way for you to find meaning in this world and we're to place our hope in him. He, he also says in John 14, 6, famous words, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the fulfillment of every promise in, in the Bible. Even though Ecclesiastes was written in a period where he didn't know the, the end story, it still points to God for the end. And Jesus is where the author of Ecclesiastes is pointing. And so we need to turn to Colossians 1 and 3. Colossians gives us the answer to why and how we place our hope in Jesus. If you have a Bible, turn to Colossians. Um, eventually we'll be in 3, but I want to talk about one. It's not going to be on the screen. Colossians 1, 15 through 20 are some of the most lofty words ever written about Jesus. Some of the highest words that have ever been spoken about Jesus are in Colossians 1, I believe. It's a, my opinion. Um, 15 through 20. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Because in, in other words, what he says, in, in light of what Jesus has done, he lived this perfect life, he died in our place for our sins and he conquered death by rising from the grave. Because of what Jesus has done, he, he just says everything was made by Jesus and for Jesus and therefore he reigns supreme over everything. He is first and preeminent. He is head and he is king. So that's what Colossians 1 says. And, and then we get to Colossians 3, it's on the screen. Colossians 3, one through three, says this. In light of what, who Jesus is and what he's done, Here's who we are. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Anytime the Bible describes Jesus seated at the right hand of God, he's describing, it's describing him as ruling in authority with God. And he says, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, not on things under the sun. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God above the sun. In other words, if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus, then your, your life is hidden in the one who reigns supreme over everything. And so just like in Job, when we get to the end of the book, God speaks and says, here's who I am and I'm asking you to trust me. Our life is hidden in the one who reigns supreme. And so how do we have, place our hope in him? Colossians 3, 1 through 17 give us a great model. The first four verses, it's 
Fix your eyes on him. Our first step is to look to him because that's where our life is heading. And then verses five through 11 say, okay, now put to death these things because these things damage your relationship with God and with others. And then the last few verses, 12 through 17, say, now embrace these things because these things help your relationships thrive. Look to Jesus, put to death these things, and embrace these things, and that's the Christian life. That's how we place our hope in Jesus. So as we head to a time of communion, as you grab your little cup, this hope we have in Jesus is not is not a simplistic, cliche hope for your darkest and most discouraging moments in life. It is a real hope from a real God who's made a real sacrifice on the cross to give you real and meaningful life in him. And so we take this bread and we eat it in light of Jesus' body that was broken for us. And we take this juice and we drink it in light of the covenant that was made by his blood spilled on the cross. And we place our hope in Jesus. And we stand and sing.